Do you want to win some money? I bet you do. Do you care about civil affairs? Yes, I know for sure, because you're listening to the show. Check out the call for issue papers. The new theme is campaigning and civil affairs. Some questions to answer include, how can CA contribute to campaigning? Beyond policy, what changes can better operationalize and integrate CA's role in campaigning? How would CA even measure progress in campaigning? And how would a full concept of the CA role in campaigning apply to conflict prevention, security cooperation, irregular, or gray zone warfare? So put that thinking cap on and submit your papers by Friday, 15 September. For more details, visit civilfairsassoc.org. Welcome to the 1CA Podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with the partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassoc.org. I'll have those in the show notes. I like what I do because I have kind of a unique perspective compared to most Green Berets because we get caught up in the the direct action stuff and, and some of the higher level things. And I'm the guy that's always saying, sure, but at the end of the day, what we really need to learn is how to how to build relationships. Today, Dr. Joseph Long comes to the show to discuss his new publication, The Future of Conflict, How Super-Empowered Populations Will Change Warfare, which was published at the Irregular Warfare Initiative. Joe is a retired Green Beret and now a senior lecturer at the Defense Security Cooperation University in Virginia. I'll have links to his paper and bio in the show notes. What we really need to learn is how to, how to build relationships and get back to special operations being something that you do in and around partner forces and partner populations. And we've kind of gotten away from that in the last 20 years because we kind of think of the partners and populations as anecdotal. Right. So that's why when I saw that you're from the civil affairs side, I was like, perfect. You know, somebody who's going to actually maybe pay attention and want to have that conversation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I want to bring it out. So how long were you in the, in the berets? Did you retire out of the military? Yeah, I retired in 2019. My first day of special forces selection was September 11th. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I wanted to go in special forces because I was a, I was an armor officer before and I was just kind of bored. You would have been a lot busier in a few months, but. <laughs> yeah, I was like, if I'm going to get out, I want to do something fun before I get out. So I'm like, I'm going to go be a Green Beret. Right. And then the first day of, of selection was like 9-11. And then it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then just one thing led to another. And next thing you know, um, I was at the Special Warfare Center and I was like, huh, I'm retiring. Well, there must have been something that caused you to lean towards education versus, you know, retiring and building motorcycles or something else. Yeah. You know, after my team time, I took a job as a uh, Robin Stage instructor. Mm-hmm. I became a call. And then I was like, okay, let me try to figure out what I want to do with my life. And I started thinking about getting out again. And it's like, well, if I get out, I should probably get a master's degree first. So I went to the Naval Postgraduate School. And I'm a West Point guy. So I didn't really spend a lot of time worried about school. I mostly like measured in, you know, two LT. Right. So when I, I remember driving from Fort Bragg all the way out to California, like just 
nervous because I was like, oh, God, I don't like school. This is going to suck, but I got to get through it. Um, and the Naval Force Graduate School changed my life. And, you know, and I'm always happy to tell people that. I didn't know that I liked grad school because I'd never been. And um, it's just, it's a different kind of education. It's, it's andragogy, which is adult learning, as opposed to pedagogy, which is how you teach children. Hmm. And West Point is very pedagogical in a lot of ways. So, yeah, that changed my life. And, you know, when I was 10 years older and I had a, you know, a military career that was pretty exciting. And I was a combat veteran and a Green Beret. And I had done some legit unconventional warfare. So I was already inclined to think a little bit more than just about kicking doors and pulling triggers. Right. And I came out of the Naval Postgraduate School. Yeah, I remember telling my dad, I was like, I kind of think I want to I want to pursue a doctor degree. I like the way the professors thought. I like the way that they interacted with you and the way that they talked to you and that they were like peer mentors. And I really enjoyed it. And then I, I found myself just a, a few short years later and somebody was like, they're looking at a terminal degree program for, for special forces officer. And General Sokolik at the time was the commanding general at SWIC. And I applied and I got it. So I was able to go from there, get a doctorate degree. And, and in the process of doing that, I found that I just truly had a passion for that level of thinking. And yeah, the whole thing was an accident. And, you know, and that's like the most fortunate accident I've ever had. You know, and that's fantastic. I'm still, I'm curious though, what, what caused you to really work on and focus on the human terrain? Like you said, that's the difference is that you weren't just a coin operator. You were you're actually looking at the human terrain and how you can actually create effects. So there must have been some point where you had either negotiated or collaborated in, in a way that caused you to save lives or material or achieve a mission. Yeah. So I started my doctoral journey at found an online program that offered their doctorate in leadership. And I was thinking about it and I was like, huh, if political science is about two political actors and whether or not they're going to go to war. In my mind, I was like, I can translate that to leadership and think it's about the decisions that the leaders make. And I met with the uh, director of the program as a retired two-star general. And he was very user-friendly. And he was like, hey, we're a very positive program. We take people that are qualified and we develop them and all of that. So I was like, great. So sometimes it's about being in the right environment. And the great thing about leadership is it's very cross-disciplinary. You know, I'm an army officer. I'm, I'm here to solve problems. The retired general was like, we solve problems. We want you to be a scholar and a practitioner. And I was like, oh, sweet. He's like, of course, we want you to be cross-disciplinary. We want you to use scholarly research from everywhere and apply them to problems. And I was like, well, that's what I want to do anyways. So yeah, in the process of doing that, I was trying to translate my dream and relook some theories about irregular warfare. But now I took some of those ideas and I reframed them as leadership problems. So then I said, what's the big problem with special operators? What's our big problem with irregular warfare, unconventional warfare, working with partner forces? And I was like, aha, we don't know how to properly lead our partner forces. So you can talk theory all day long, you know, mouse a tongue, swimming with the fish and Che Guevara and and Dave Galula, and you can talk about how to do it. But if you don't know how to lead the people that you're doing it with, then you're going to get suboptimal outcomes anyways. And then I thought back and I was like, hey, the, my experience has been replete with examples of some Green Berets doing it well, some Green Berets not doing it well, 
our attitudes about our partner forces. So I started to develop a leadership theory on how to lead partner forces. And I was able to work on that over time. And it just kind of came together. I mean, even when I would talk about it at SWIC and the CG at the time was like, we learn about how to lead because we do Robin Sage. And I was like, sure, who do we lead in Robin Sage? We lead Americans who are pretending to be something else. They're not really bringing all of the things. So we, we train on how to like do a campaign, an unconventional warfare campaign, but we never look at it through the leadership lens. We say things like cultural awareness and language training. And we assume that that's just enough and that the rest of it is they're, they're going to be led just like Americans are led. And that's just not true. So I was able to, to dive into all the literature and develop a theory on how to lead partner forces. And then for my doctoral research and my dissertation, I tested it and I had some you know, fantastic results. And now I was like, haha, I kind of found this new area that's understudied. A lot of people don't even think it's an understudied area because they don't think it exists. And so now I'm reframing it. So I spent a lot of time at the Joint Special Operations University building a curriculum on partner force leadership because everything we do as part of our strategy of integrated deterrence is going to require us to start learning how to build friends. Have you ever met Frank Subcheck? Yeah, yeah, I know Frank. He was on episode 115 about a very similar thing. He was assessing the Iraqi and the Afghan forces that did actually perform well while everyone else was collapsing. And he had very similar answers. And that was, one, he, did, he found that the language training was helpful but not critical. And, and he found that it was the persistent engagement with the partner nation. It was rotating the same forces back so that they knew these people. They trained with them. It was very personal. And that's what made them more effective as a partner nation extension to the soft forces. Oh, I, I agree 100%. Yeah. The independent variable that I looked at was connectedness. Right. My hypothesis was that teams that displayed higher levels of connectedness should have higher levels of successful outcomes. They should have greater success. And as a matter of fact, the first time I like ran a scatter plot of my data, I was horrified because the data was like almost too good. And I was like, <laughs> you're like, I've skewed it. <laughs> Maybe I biased the data in here some way. I didn't ask the right questions. And I sat down with my methods advisor and we went over it. And it's like, maybe it's just how it is. But what was great is as I was writing up drafts, I had a warrant officer who worked up in the G3 with me. He couldn't take my survey because you had to have been a Green Beret who led partner forces in Afghanistan because I was trying to really, really keep a homogenous population. Right. So it was only Green Berets and it was only Afghanistan and he'd only been in Iraq. But he wanted to read it when I had one of the drafts. So I gave him one of the drafts. Right. And he took it over on a weekend. And everybody, you know, even my best friends are like, I'm going to read your dissertation. And nobody. Yeah. I send my link out to these shows and you know, I'm like, hey, listen to it. And I never hear back. <laughs> it has math in it. You know, they're not fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> but so he came back and he was like, man, this really was interesting to me. Good. And I was like, okay, awesome. And he goes, this reminds me. And he was telling me about when he was on a team and they were in Iraq mm -hmm. and they had had a significant like green on blue incident. Oh, wow. And he was telling me, he was like, you know, one of the, uh, one of the guys from his ODA was killed and a couple of the Iraqis were killed. And we were doing an investigation about it. Um, as they were talking to the Iraqis, there was a sentiment of, we knew it was going to happen. And they're like, what? And they go, yeah, like this guy was shaving off all of his hair. He was giving away all of his stuff. He was showing signals of radicalization. Yeah. And so, and of course we were like, why didn't you tell us? 
And he said the Iraqis were like, oh, the relationship you set with us is we don't tell you anything. You tell us and we do it. Oh. So, so he's like, I'm reading your paper and I'm realizing that connectedness with your partner force, it might not stop the fact that somebody wants to kill you, but it will greatly increase the chances that you'll know about it. Right. And I was like, that's, that's absolutely part of it, right? I wanted it to resonate with other things. And then you watch, um, you know, I don't know if you've seen any of the SOCOM videos that they put out themselves about the 2017 Niger ambush. I've not seen those. With the green plate. If you send me a link, I'll check them out. Oh, yeah, man. I'll, I'll definitely send it to you. So there was a team that was ambushed in Tonga Tonga in uh, Niger in 2017. They were like on a chase set. No. Um, they ended up getting ambushed by like elements of Al Qaeda and several guys were killed. All sorts of investigations came out of it. They actually didn't get rescued until like 12 hours later by French aviation assets. But when you watch that, you see them working with the Niger partner force. And as soon as they start taking fire, you can see the lion's share of the partner force just kind of like drives away. There's a movie on Netflix called 3212 Unredacted. And it is a look into that case because there's a lot of the parents and stuff that think that there's some things that just aren't really right about it, almost in the way that the Pat Tillman thing was kind of investigated. Right. But I look at that and I go, here's another case in real world validating that we need to learn how to lead partner forces a little bit better. Sure. Because had they had a better relationship with their partner forces, they might not have been walked into that ambush. They might have not let that happen. They might have told them it was going to happen and they might have, or they might have stayed and fought. Yeah. But we don't do that and we're bouncing in and out. And we think that the way you lead Americans is the same way you lead everybody else. Right. Then you're totally forgetting that we get off helicopters as, you know, six foot five yoked up tattooed white guys walking over to people in developing countries, tribal societies. And we're kind of like, you're welcome. Follow <laughs> us. I've never seen that overseas. It's funny, but it's true. It's funny because it's true. It is true. You can Google stuff and you can find Americans laughing at Afghans trying to do trying to do jumping jacks or pull-ups or all of that, right? So we get frustrated because we're leaving them wrong. And then you go, well, why are we leaving them wrong? Well, guess what? They're different types of societies. Yeah. If you think of a leader, typically you're going to think of a man. You're going to think of a person who's tall and strong and leads by example. And that kind of goes back to our connection with Greek and Roman mythology. Right. On what it means to be a hero, what it means to be a leader. All of those things are tied together in other cultures. A leader is somebody who's a master of relationships. Right. A leader is somebody who is older. It's, it's, there's a whole different construct. So we're coming over to these people in developing countries and presenting what we think a leader should be. And they're wishing that we were presenting what they want a leader to be. Sure. So we're just having a complete failure of leadership. And nobody likes to say that because we worked really hard and we spent two decades and people got hurt and we did our best. But we never taught ourselves how to lead, how to connect with people that are not like us. You guys in civil affairs do civil military operations. Sometimes it's in easy places, but most of the times it's in hard places. It's to try to help people who are following us. We're not just doing what we say because we're dominating them. We want people to follow us, which means we have to connect with partner forces and partner nations, not at the macro level, at the embassy level, but all the way down to the micro level how to connect with these folks and make it a partnership. Yeah. 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 And we can't do that. 
because the local population they have agency they make their decisions mm-hmm. they're going to determine if you're a if you're a local farmer in the middle of a country in africa you're going to look out and you're going to see agents of america you're going to see micro level agents of russia and micro level agents of china and you're going to determine who you work with right based on who you connect with and if we don't figure out how to get people at those levels those local village elders and micro level leaders and micro level populations if they don't believe that their lives are better off working with the united states than they are with russian and chinese actors then we're going to lose and then when we lose it doesn't matter that we have more guns it doesn't matter that we have more artillery it doesn't matter that we outspent russia and china on defense what's going to matter is china was able to buy connectedness with their population 1 km at a time in the belt and road we're not doing that so our strategy requires that we figure out how to connect with people that don't look or act like us and we never talk about it have you ever heard of a guy named josh beddingfield uh not offhand he's ca active duty guy he writes on shadow governments mhm and his focus is on either creating a network within local populations that builds legitimacy for your military or political goal or if you're on the other side of it how you as a military political leader mm-hmm. dissolve a insurgent or competitors shadow government so that the public's move to support you and give you legitimacy and not your competitor yeah i think you and him on a panel would be great <laughs> Yeah, you both have the same point. If the population supports you, they give you legitimacy in your efforts. And if they don't, then you're a fraud that you you're going to fall apart as he says. And then you have to resort to coin. We always say that we're in there doing population centric operations. Sure. But it's lip service. As soon as we're under any stress, we default back to being security force oriented. Right. We become enemy focused. And the more enemy we kill, the more mistakes we make and the more mistakes we make the more friendlies we kill and the more friendlies we kill the less we're connecting with the population we are not set up to truly be population centric we need to understand that our relationship with the population is number 1 it's the center of gravity right killing the enemy is anecdotal as soon as one gun goes off everybody's like oh where's the enemy and then we start chasing the enemy and then we turn around and say hey we're here to protect you and the, and the populations are like i don't believe you matter of fact if you do it right then they will protect you from the enemy and actually help you to remove them yeah so think about this before the united states gets to any country you know you could look at iraq and afghanistan and all of that there's a certain level of stability that was existing before the united states stepped foot into the country typically our arrival is the beginning of a great drop in stability our arrival brings lower stability sure and we run around and tell ourselves that we're here to help but our actions are showing that we're here to make things worse that's a problem that we're going to have to solve right it is a problem i was just thinking of jody vitori she runs an organization called the anti corruption advocacy network she writes about how the us when it comes into a country whether it's through aid state the military the way we do development and engagements creates corruption yeah. and it's part of the reason that the afghan government collapse and the military collapses is because we're not using the right incentives we're just flipping money at people who have never really had any money and expecting them to perform in a certain way 
it creates a transactional relationship with our partner nations to where when we leave or we need help, that transaction's over. Yeah. And usually these governments or militaries collapse. So and what you're saying kind of reminds me of what she's talking about. I'm very much in alignment with her on that. So I have a graph in one of my papers where I show that transactional leadership, it'll take off very, very quickly in a short amount of time because you're buying cooperation, but that wears off very fast and it flattens out and it levels out very, very quickly, mm-hmm. right? Connectedness, right? Relational leadership starts out very, very slow, but it has no endpoint. It can continue to go up and up and up. And it attracts the wrong kind of people to you. Yeah. So what we need to do is learn how to leverage both types of leadership simultaneously. Instead of talking about carrots and sticks, we have to be transactional and relational at the same time. At the time that the benefits of having given people money and having bought cooperation, at the time that that starts to wear off, by then the relational aspect of it starts to kick in. And then you can say, oh, now we've moved on. We've moved past that. And you have to be able to go back and forth. And we really only think about one side of it. So she's absolutely right. And you can see where we make that mistake. There's obviously some benefit to transactional leadership, but we're, we tend to be like a one-trick pony. Yeah. And we always go, what worked before? Let's do it again. Yeah, because we only have a short amount of time until this mission hits. And so we're like, okay, I'm going to give you some money. We need to just do it. Okay. Yeah. Well, we tend to think that more is better always. You know? And typically, it's not. It's, it's, a, it's not a linear transformation. It's a, it's a U-shape which means you start out more is better. Yeah. And then it starts to decline almost like anything, right? Like drinking beer is fun until you drink to a certain point, And then any point after that, the more you drink, the worse you, you get. become that guy. <laughs> yeah. You become that guy. And that's the thing. And then we're like, let's find out what happens. Right. Because we're not really thinking strategically and we're not very reflective. And we kind of have turned our back on a lot of the academic that's been done. Um, thinking that we can just kind of like John Wayne our way through these problems, we're missing a lot of the lessons. And they're they're right on your nose. You go, yeah, you're right. Too much transactional leadership is bad. Right. One of the movies I love, and a lot of Green Berets hate it because they don't have like a prominent role for the team sergeant. But one of the things I liked about the movie 12 Strong mm-hmm. is you see that classic unconventional warfare where the team leader and his guys arrive and they're trying to like get this guy's attention. And they're like, hey, here's a bottle of whiskey. And he's like, I don't care. You know, and then they're like, um, we can drop bombs. And he's like, show me. So right off the bat, they're able to get his attention through transactional means. The rest of the movie is about that man building a relationship with General Dostum, the warlord. Mm. And it's tested because in the very end, he's like, General, I'm ordered to take this town. And he's like, I don't want to take this town. I want to take this other town. Right. And he's like, well, I have to take this town because my orders say that. And they have this interesting conversation about he's like, I don't have a boss. I work for God. And he's like, well, I work for Secretary Rumsfeld. Hmm. And so essentially he's like, we're going to go do this with or without you. And he's like, OK, fine, you're doing it without me. And they go start to attack the town. And just like every movie, just as they're like really in the shit, the Afghans show back up because he built a relationship with them. They didn't show back up because they had to. They showed back up. Because they meant something to them. That's the part we're missing. And then then you say, man, and then so the results of my research were like so linear. It was so tight. Green Beret teams that treated their people well, that built connectedness with them, that developed a collective identity, that involved them in their operations, that did all of these things in these ways that I came up to measure it. 
they had very successful outcomes. Hmm. And the teams that didn't do that, the teams that had the absence of those behaviors, they had negative outcomes. They're the ones that had green on blue violence. And people are like, well, you can't say it's the team's fault for having a green on blue violence. Right. And I'm like, I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is that the data suggests with a high correlation that those things don't happen to the other types of teams. Right. Well, and it's one of those things that if your team is not connecting well with your partner nation, maybe that's an indicator. That's a red line to where you say, you know what, we're not making that connectivity that we need. And I'm concerned about us not carry out a mission and, and security. And they either swap out teams or they swap out people that don't seem to be connecting or, you know what I mean? This could be also something that's a safety trigger that helps spot these issues. Or maybe we just become a little bit more aware about it. And then we get there and then I'm like, Jack, that guy likes talking to you. He hates talking to me. How about if you just go tell him you're in charge? Oh, okay. Like we have to be able to do those things. Right. In order for all of that to happen, we have to train for it. And we're not going to train for it until we understand the degree to which our survival relies on our relationships. Right. Here's another challenge for you. I was talking to a Marine. His name is uh, Greg Schaefer. And he was talking about the challenge of years of engagement and how to manage that. And it's something that state aid and DOD struggle with in foreign policy. Absolutely. You know, you've got to where you've been going to the Philippines, for example, for years. And you don't remember what, you know, they did 10 years ago to help this village out. No less the team that just left. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so we're, we're going to have to get better at chronicling our relationships. I mean, we talk about it. We, we talk about building these relationship maps and who's who in the zoo and what they do. But having that handoff and that long-term relationship, even if the person going back still has to follow up from home to keep that relationship going, there's got to be some type of generational lead. That's exactly it. You should never come back without understanding where they are. So we leave and they move teams around. Yeah, it should be like my team and your team are in the same place indefinitely. We rotate out, but I still come to meetings virtually when you're there and I'm home. Yeah. So you're always warm, no matter what's going on. Yeah. And you do the same thing. And so, and I just happened to anecdotally, it just worked out that way, that the team that we replaced in 2004 was the same team that replaced us again in 2005. And I don't talk about who they are or whatever, you know, and they're just one case, but they were not interested in us telling them what things were like now. Right. In their mind, they were just here. They know how it goes. Let's get back to work. And if we constantly do that, if we're constantly fighting 2004 over and over and over again, we're never going to allow ourselves to move forward. Hmm. We have to do it. We have to have leaders that stay there for long periods of time. Sure. You know, the idea in fifth group was forward deployed perpetually in Vietnam. That kind of makes sense. Everybody went from the other groups and they came and they were employed by there. And that way, the senior leaders, I mean, they can take leave and stuff. But somebody has to be an observer to see the quality of relationships move forward, to see progress. And if we constantly reset every eight months, every 12 months, if we're constantly resetting, then that's just creating havoc on the lives of the partner forces of the population who we say we're helping. Right. And, you know, I remember one of the first patrols we did in Coast, we went as far out into the middle of nowhere as we could. 
and we go into the small village and the village elder comes out and we hop out and we're super excited to go talk to this guy. We walk over to him and you know what this guy did? He started speaking to me in Russian, <laughs> you know, and I'm a first group team, right? So none of us speak Russian. And my interpreter was like, I have no idea what this guy's saying. And I was like, well, you know, that makes two of us. And we finally figured out we were speaking Russian. Right. And then we figured out what the deal was because now finally our interpreter could figure out how to talk to him. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you guys are Russian. We're like, we're not Russian. And he says, the last white guy I saw looked exactly like you and he was Russian. (laughs) But think about it. 1988 to 2004 isn't that long ago for him. The last time there was, there was white people running around Afghanistan. They were Russians. They don't know the difference. They don't really care. They're not really caught up in macro level politics with the United States and the Taliban, which they didn't even really respond well to the Taliban. They were kind of doing their own thing. Yeah. But the idea that that we don't have to establish our own relationships, we don't have to steer these, we don't own these is ridiculous because if not, we're missing out on an opportunity. Yeah. And you can't lead somebody unless you understand how they think. And that's why we have to learn how to use relational leadership right. with people that aren't like us at all. And it's going to require that we, we select the right kind of people. If you don't have the temperament for this, then you need to go do something else. I mean, it's that important because you're out there alone, away from all of these resources, which we brag about. But then we have this behavior where we're like, we can go smack everybody around. And as soon as something goes wrong, we expect blades to be turn in in two minutes and for us to have close air support to help us out in 15 minutes. And if we're really doing this, if we're really bringing the strategic impact, that's not going to be the case. Right. We're going to have to say, I'm going to live and die based on my relationship with this, you know, insert group of people. Yeah. This sounds much closer to Peace Corps and how they actually operate in populations than it does most of the military that I've, I've seen. We have to be different, right? We've been bragging about being different forever. And our difference is we have more money and we have better weapons and more gunfights and all of that. But we haven't really explored the part of being different that makes the difference. Right. And it's more than just Googling Afghan culture. (laughs) I'm culturally aware. It's about getting down there and meeting them where they are. Ladies and gentlemen, we're splitting the episode here. So come back next week to hear Dr. Long discuss his strategy for implementing relational leadership in both soft and conventional forces. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have the email and CA Association website in the show notes. And now, most importantly... To those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations, thank you all for what you're doing. This is Jack, your host. Stay tuned for more great episodes, 1CA Podcast.